Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. The scripture reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. And again he went out at about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And at about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing idle here all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. I asked him to read the passage because of the phraseology about doing the right thing. Now, this, this parable of our Lord isn't actually about uh, the, 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 uh, the um, observation I want to make. It's just that I'm going to borrow that to make this. And watch what I mean. So, the landowner, the landowner came and said to these workers at different times of the day, you go and work for me. Now, the first group that came to him, he hired them based on a specific price. But then through the day, he hired other laborers to come and work in the vineyard. And what he said to them was not a particular price about what he would pay them if they would do the work. He just said, you do this and whatever is right, I will pay you. I really like that. They trusted him based on his system of ethics, that, that he would do the right thing. That was what he promised, and they were willing to go out there, and I'm not sure I would. I, you know, if you didn't know the man, if you didn't have some reason to have confidence in him, that might just be too ambiguous to say, I'm going to go out and sweat in the sun, and you'll just do me what, what you think is right. Well, that might not be satisfactory, but anyway, that's what happened. They had enough confidence in him and his sense of ethics that they, they did that. Now... There are a lot of young people that are coming into adulthood now across the, this country in churches of Christ who, who get to be college age and they launch out into school or some, some career and they leave the faith. They may not be irreligious. They may just join some religion out there and leave the church of Christ. This sermon is about that. And the reason sometimes is because... In the pulpits, what we haven't done is to teach our young people the distinctive nature of the Church of Christ, the, the New Testament church. And that's why I want to bring this lesson tonight about what I'm calling faith ethics. Faith ethics. Because if, if you look at the comparison between the Church of Christ, the Church of the New Testament, and other religions out there, and you only think about some of these issues such as, are they kind people? Are they nice people? Are they benevolent people? 
People in all religions, I suppose, bear some of these qualities. And in fact, you might find some, a group of people and say they're more benevolent than we are in this church, so that church must be the one. Or you might say, you know what, I, I really like their worship better because they've got this great band, a great drummer, and, and that saxophone player is wonderful, and I just like that atmosphere better. And so if it comes down to that, well, I think, I think I'll just change. And that's what young people sometimes are doing. I want you to never do that. And, and in order to protect you from that, you need to understand the significant foundational differences between the church of the New Testament and the, the denominational world out there. So I'm calling this faith ethics. It's about faith ethics. Now, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week, I, I went to Hebrews 10 and verse 25, and we talked about the Greek word ethos. Forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The word manner there, sometimes translated the habit of some, is the Greek word ethos, the word from which we get our word ethic. Now, let me give you this, this definition of that Greek word. Well, this is, this is not from the Greek word, but it's a definition. There's the Greek word, ethos. Usage prescribed by law, institute, prescription, or right. Now, I want you to focus on that and appreciate that there's a root to our ethic. That is that ethics mean that I do what I do because of some prescription, some institute, some some body of law or rules, and I hold that to be right, and that becomes my ethic. I, I, I do what I do, I hold to what is right or wrong based on that standard. Those are my ethics. All right? Now, here, here's a, go back to the other slide. Here's a walking down the street definition of ethics. It examines the rational justification for our moral judgment. It studies what is morally right or wrong, just or unjust. Now, now, that doesn't really tell you what the ethical standard is. What I'm saying is that in ethics in general, there has to be, of course, a foundational body of truth or what we hold as truth, and we're basing our decisions on that, and that would be our ethical decisions. All right. There's a general way in which we use this. I mean, you, you, you hear somebody who is, has abused someone or somebody who has stolen money or something, and we, we might say that that is unethical, but without thinking that it implies that there's some rule or system by which we're making that judgment, and we assume that everybody follows the same ethic. When you come to religion, we have such an ethic. There was a time in America, just to illustrate this a little further, a time in America when we had a gold standard. And the gold standard was this idea to keep down inflation. What we should do is have for every paper dollar, there's a dollar's worth of gold in the U.S. government. So it, it all is represented by tangible gold assets. And the paper, I think it was about, I think it was figured at $35 an ounce at the time. And so the paper dollar actually is a, is a note that represents actual gold. And the idea was it would keep down inflation. But eventually, we wanted to print more money. And so our money now doesn't, it doesn't tie back to anything foundational like gold. It's just paper and it's the economy that keeps it going and, and et cetera. The only point I want to make about that is that this principle of a gold standard 
It's not so dissimilar to this discussion of ethics. Behind it, behind that paper dollar, was something real and tangible and something that had inherent value. In law, sometimes attorneys will argue black law. Now, that doesn't mean black as opposed to white. It's not about a racial thing. It's about a man named black. And, and this is, black law is a book that's been revised over the years, but it's, it's about legal terms, and it also includes cases where those legal terms came into play. And so you have this history of cases that you can refer back to and say, in the case of Smith versus Brown, here's what happened. And it's argued, and, but anyway, the, the, the black law book is considered to be very substantial. So arguments would herald back to black law or to that book. What about Christians? What about people who profess to be Christians, members of the church, or they're part of some church in Christendom? And to what do we herald back? What is the root of our ethic? And the answer, of course, is the scriptures. I think most people in Christendom and all the thousands of different, and I mean that, thousands of different religious organizations, bodies in Christendom, I think most or all of them would say that the Bible is the root of our ethic. Is it? That's what this sermon is about. So, first of all, let's let's establish that that's the case. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Study to show yourself approved of God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The implication by that is that we can understand truth well enough to rightly divide it, that we can study it and and understand to whom these passages are written. I mean, I'm not going to build an ark because I wasn't commanded to. Noah was. So we rightly divide. I'm not amenable to the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, or to the Ten Commandments. I'm amenable to the New Testament law, the law of Christ. Well, that's rightly dividing the word of truth, and that's what it says. ESV says, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, that establishes the root of our ethic or the prescription of our ethic. And what about this one? Jude chapter 1, there's one chapter, verse 3. I found it necessary to write unto you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all delivered. The faith. The faith is the practice of true religion. The article the identifies this as the practice of true religion. It is the faith. First Peter 1.23, that we were born again. Get this now. That's, how you, that's when you became a Christian. The Bible uses that term in John chapter 3 in Nicodemus. You must be born again. And we're born again. But how do we learn how to be born again? This passage from Peter says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. How did you become a Christian? I became a Christian by studying the word of God. That is the root, the prescription of our Christian ethic. Got it? Ephesians 4 and verse 4 says there's one faith. The implication of that is... There's one true practice of religion taught in the New Testament. Saying that does not make me arrogant. It's, it's an objectively true s- statement whether or not I'm part of that. It's simply the case that the New Testament objectively teaches one faith. And that faith is found on the pages of the New Testament. All right, now there, there's, there's the principle on which I'm bas- basing this sermon. So it's our ethics. I want to talk about the ethics of our faith. 
And I want to give you a half a dozen things that I think are often said today by religious people in Christendom that are said that are really violations of that ethic. And I want you to think about them. Now, here's the first one. They don't think about them as being violations of that ethic, but that's what they are. So here's number one. It doesn't matter what church you're a part of so long as you believe in Jesus. Here's what the pattern says. Here's what the prescription says. Matthew 16, 18. Anyone want to read what the Bible has to say about the word church? And Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. It's very important to appreciate that he didn't, didn't refer to denominationalism or plurality of, of uh, churches or ecumenicalism, pluralism. It wasn't that. It was very simple. I'm, I'm going to build my church. Our objective really ought to be not to find a church of our choice. It ought to be to find out through the New Testament what is Jesus' choice. What is it that Jesus wants us to do? Because that is what's consistent with our ethic, our faith ethic. We get back to the book. What is it that the Bible says about this? Denominationalism or pluralism says something different. The denominational concept is that it really doesn't matter what church you're in, so long as you're sincere or so long as you claim some adherence to Jesus Christ. And the the creation then of literally thousands of different faiths under the umbrella of Christendom has been created on that misunderstanding. Here's what the New Testament says. Here's what the prescription says, which is the foundation of our ethic. I would that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Denominational concept that says that doesn't matter what church you're in, we're all going to heaven just different ways, implies one of two things. It is really critical that everybody in this room gets the implication. I've never been a member of any denomination. I'm only a member of the church that Jesus was talking about when he said, on this rock I'll build my church. How do you know what that's like? Well, read the New Testament. And you'll know what I know. You read the New Testament, you say, here's what the New Testament church is like, the church that Jesus came to build. Now, if it's true that it doesn't matter what religion we're part of, it doesn't matter what church you're a part of, so long as you're sincere or so long as you believe in Jesus, it says something about your ethic. It says something about the ethic being founded on the Word of God. And one of two things is true. Next slide. Either, number one... hmm, well, I didn't, do, I didn't make a slide for this, but here are the two implications. The first one is either we cannot know the truth relative to religion, or number two, we can know the truth, but it doesn't matter. Which one can you live with? It isn't the case that we can't know the truth. The Bible, that we've talked about these passages, the Bible firmly, clearly says that we're born again by the word of God that lives and abides forever. That, that's where we get it. Is that true? The Bible asserts that it is. The Bible affirms that it is. So it can't be the case that we can't know the truth about religion. The second one, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this argument? That it really doesn't, I mean, we can know the truth, but, but Jesus doesn't really care about those things, about how you do the, the church, how, what kind of worship you practice, what kind of doctrine you preach. So the first one is that compromises the ethic, is that it doesn't matter what church you're a part of. Here's the second one is that the Holy Spirit guides me in a personal way. Hmm. It is not the case 
It's not right to say that the Holy Spirit doesn't guide us. Of course the Holy Spirit guides us. That's not the question. The question is, how does he do that? And the argument or the belief that the Holy Spirit guides me in an individual, personal way compromises the ethic. Now, the Holy Spirit gave us the Bible, which makes explicit claims of being everything that we need. Here's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit. What did the Holy Spirit do? He gave us the New Testament. We have the scriptures because the Holy Spirit gave it to inspired men. They wrote it down, and now we have it. When you study and follow the New Testament, you are being led by the Spirit. That's what that is. Today, we're guided by the Spirit through the Word. 1 Peter 1, 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Look at Romans 8 and verse 1. That, that we have no condemnation to worry about. And he said, here's the reason. Because you don't walk after the flesh. You walk after the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? How does, how does a person walk after the Holy Spirit? 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship. So we walk after the Spirit. Now the passage says we walk by the light or according to the light, in the light. That's, that's, it's the same thing. But look at, look at 2 John verse 4. I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth. There you have it. Walking in the light, walking after the Spirit, and walking in truth are all the same thing. And the point is that I'm guided by the Spirit, but it's not personally. It's not directly. I'm guided by the study of the Word of God, which came to us by the Holy Spirit. If it's the case that we are governed personally, individually by the Spirit, that somehow He communicates to us separate and apart from the Word, you have some consequences that you may not see coming. Here are the consequences. One, it shows partiality because you'll have, you have people with the name Christian and some of them are having these communications from the Holy Spirit. Some of them are not. Hmm. Sincere, faithful, devout Christians, but they're not, they're not getting these communications. And yet God's not a respecter of persons. How do you reconcile that? It's not the case the Holy Spirit communicates directly to us. And it's confusing. If it's true, the Spirit tells different things to different people. Really? Are you ready for that? And what about the third one? It says the Spirit speaks through feelings and urges that could easily be misinterpreted. How do you know? How would you know that, that what's being communicated to you, if it communicates in, in feelings and urges, how would you know that it wasn't the devil who is the angel? He sometimes presents himself as an angel of light. How would you know that? The answer is you wouldn't. You wouldn't. So number two, I would argue that a violation of our ethic, our faith ethic, which is the Bible, the New Testament, is the prescription for our faith and practice and teaching. A violation of that would be to say that we're guided personally, directly by the Holy Spirit. Mm, that's not true. And here's number three. This practice, and I'm just speaking this randomly, sometimes this is a statement that's made. This practice is right because the elders said it's all right. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, I really believe in the authority of the elders, but the elders don't have authority to, to violate the, 
the foundational principles of Scripture. They have authority in matters of judgment. And so, for example, and this is what I have in mind with this one, it's when I've heard it used. It's when an eldership wants to, in their congregation, they want to have an enlarged leadership role for women. So we'll have women in Oklahoma Christian University. Somebody said to me yesterday that last year in every, this is a, a preacher in Oklahoma who lives close to the university, and he said in every chapel service last year, Everyone, it's a religious service, had a woman to lead prayer or to read scripture or to speak. And every single one of them. Suppose an eldership says, you know what, we've just decided that we think, I mean, we've prayed about this and we've just made up our mind that in our congregation we will expand the leadership position of women. Do the elders have the authority to do that? And the answer is they do not. They do not have that authority. And what happens is this has violated the ethic of our faith. In 2 Timothy chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, the Bible says that a woman is to learn in silence. The word silence there means in quietness. It's the same chapter, by the way, that says that men are to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. But the women are remain silent, and I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, now is, that, is that ambiguous? It's not. And he, mean to, he means to say something here. And the very idea that we would say, well, our elders have been praying about this and studying about this, and they've decided that it's all right. And so now we're going to have women in expanded roles that contradict what this says. That's a violation of our faith ethic. Number three, or number four, rather. We do it this way because the results are better for us. All right, now, I understand that there are some pragmatic decisions that ought to be made, and elders in the church, shepherds of the church, will make those decisions, but I don't have a right to, to, to violate what the Scripture says because I consider it to be more pragmatic. It's a more practical way to do things. Now, in my mind, what I'm now is I'm thinking about a church that decides that they won't have elders, now, is the church the church even if they don't have elders? Mm-hmm. Acts 14 and verse 23, the Bible says that those early Christians were to appoint, appoint elders in every church. It was the church before they had elders. That's not the point. The point is, do I have the choice to choose to not have elders? What if we just decide that while we have men qualified, may have qualified men in the body, but we just think it's better to let the preacher be the leader of this congregation rather than having shepherds. Can we just do that? We can't do it without violating the faith ethic because the Bible teaches that every congregation is to have her own elders. There are four possibilities. Remember this now about the organization of the church. A church can be scripturally organized. Philippians chapter 1 talks about elders and deacons in a congregation and you have the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for both. Scripturally organized. And every church is to seek out and, and to raise up men who will be elders in the church. Now, it may take a long time. And sometimes churches that are very small struggle with this especially. But that's what it means to be scripturally organized. You can be scripturally unorganized, and that would mean that we want elders, and as soon as we have men who are qualified, we're going to do that. To be unscripturally organized would be to say that we're going to set up some sort of a leader over all the churches in Alabama. 
And you would do that without scriptural authority. That, you know, that's just not in the New Testament. You cre- create that, but you would violate the ethic. Or to be unscripturally or unorganized. And that means, and this is, this is the actual point where this statement is sometimes made, this argument, is that we, we don't want elders. We haven't had them in a long time, and we may have men who are qualified, but we really don't want it that way because we like the way that we're doing. We think this is better. The problem is that that violates our faith ethic about the prescription being, the foundation being the scriptures for our faith and practice. Here's number five. This practice is not wrong because the Bible nowhere says not to do it. You know, on the face that may seem pretty good, but the fact is it violates the ethic. The the Bible doesn't have to explicitly say that something is wrong for it to be wrong or right for that matter. Sometimes something is a right thing to do because of necessary inference. I'm thinking in particular about the kind of music that we have in our worship, and that's where I've heard this, this one most used. In the, in the New Testament, what you have in music is what we've had in here tonight, and it's the reason why we've had it this way. You have congregational a cappella singing. That's what they did in the first century. But, you know, that's not so with it. And most churches today have instrumental music to play, and, and sometimes in a very large way. wouldn't matter if it was large or not. They have it. And, and the argument sometimes is, well, it may not be authorized in the New Testament, but the Bible nowhere says not to do it. John 4 and 24 says, God's a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit would mean with the right heart, the right attitude, the right emotion. But what about truth? What would it mean to worship him in truth? except that I'm following the ethic, except that I'm sticking to the ethic, which, and, which is rooted in the New Testament and what it says. And what it says about this in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 is that our music and worship is to be a cappella and congregational. How, how thick would the Bible need to be if it needed to explicitly say everything that is wrong? Mm, that's not how it, it works. What, what it does is to give us the principles, and then we're responsible to make those applications. Now, here's number six. We violate our ethic when we say, and this is going to shock you at first, so I need to explain it, but I'm still studying. I'm still studying. Now, of course, I'm in favor of studying. We've already talked about that in this sermon, but sometimes this one is used in an unethical way with reference to the subject of marriage and divorce and remarriage. Now, it's not because Jesus is so ambiguous or so difficult to grasp in Matthew 19 and verse 9. I mean, what he said is, whosoever should put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marry another commits adultery, and whoever marries her which is put away commits adultery. Well, that's huge, and and it's challenging, but it's what it says. I've had elders say to me, in our church, we... um, we don't talk about that. We've decided that's a very difficult subject, and so what we're going to do in our congregation is just let God sort all of that out later. It's not wrong to say, I'm still studying. Everybody, I mean, you, you and I need to study the Scriptures all of our lives. That's just the truth. But when I say, I'm still studying, in order that I won't have to give an answer for something that Jesus is taught on plainly 
then I'm doing something that's unethical about my faith. It's an unethical faith practice. Because what I've claimed by naming myself a Christian, by calling myself a Christian, is that I adhere to the foundational principle, the prescription, if you please, which is the New Testament. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 7 refers to people who are ever learning but never come to a knowledge of the truth. So, who gets to decide about our faith and our practice and our teaching? And the answer is that we need to be really careful about making statements like these, which would indicate that we're going to go outside of the scriptures for our faith and practice. Let's stay with what the Bible says. That's what we have to do. And the fact is, to claim to be following the New Testament and to choose to do otherwise is a violation of our faith ethic. Now, when you think about your religion and your life, what I want you to do is to always stick with the New Testament. Always say, this is the authority. What does it say? Not just where, where we salt and pepper our sermons with the Bible, but where it really is the final word. It is the final word for our decisions about what we will do in religion. Always practice that. Always practice that. You've been so kind to listen. My time's up. Is there someone here tonight who wants to obey the gospel? Mm, same principles apply to that. I don't, I don't want some man telling me, here's what you could do, and you'll be saved. Don't you be telling me to pray the sinner's prayer. I don't believe that because I can't read it in the Bible. I tell you what I can read is Jesus from his own lips saying, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be damned. Well, that's not ambiguous. Short words, you know, mostly one-syllable words. I can understand that. You want to obey the gospel? You want to be saved? The Bible teaches that we need to repent of our sins, Luke 13, 3, and confess in Romans chapter 10 and verse 10, and we need to be baptized. And when we come up out of that water, the Bible says in Romans 6, beginning in verse 3, that we walk in newness of life. In newness of life. You could obey the gospel. If you have and you need the prayers for whatever reason, you want the church to pray for you tonight, we will do that. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at collie at westhuntsville.org.